Good morning, Trinity Church. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Doug. I am the lead interim pastor right now at Trinity. And uh, I just want to take a minute and thank all of you who uh, were able to come out yesterday to the campus refresh. We got a lot of great things done. The campus and the church looks a lot better. So if you happen to park in the western parking lot today, may I suggest that after the service, as you're leaving, make a circle around the east side and just take a look at all the work that was done yesterday. We had a great group of people, and I think it really made some big differences. So thank you for all of you who came. Hey, this morning I'd like to have you imagine with me that you are with a friend and you're at Starbucks <clears throat> for a cup of coffee. Maybe you're over at uh, White Rabbit for a cup of tea or hot chocolate, and they have some amazing hot chocolate over there. But as you're sitting there with your friend, they ask you a question. And uh, they say to you, hey, how can I know that Jesus lived and that he was really God in the flesh? What would you say? And let's say that they, they actually pushed the question a little bit further and they said, and is it really possible for anyone to have a real relationship with God? How would you respond to that? Now you see the questions up on the screen here. We're actually going to give you about 34 seconds to take a minute and think about it. You can write it down on your sermon notes. You can lean over to a friend or family member and say, well, I think what I would say is thus and so. So here you go. You've got 34 seconds. Let's think about it. softer next time because <laughs> I don't want to take away from the seriousness of the question I love the fact that we we recognize that tune but what would you say okay think about it and now let's make the question just a little bit easier for us let's say you're in the same setting you're at the Starbucks or White Rabbit you're having the coffee or tea with a friend and uh, this time they ask you this question how can I know that Paris is really a city and that it is in France. What would you say to that? And let's say they push the question a little bit further and they say, well, is it really possible for anyone to get to know Paris? How would you respond to that? With the volume a little lower, we're going to give you another 34 seconds. Think about that, write it down, and we'll talk about it. Guys? would you say to the second question how can you know that Paris is a city and it's located in France anybody you've been there fantastic okay what else would you say if you haven't been there 
It's on a map. You can Google it. History will tell us that. You can watch a movie. Les Mis, right? Ratatouille. They're all focused in France. How can anyone have a relationship, or how can they get to know Paris better? One of the most obvious answers is go there, right? Another one is to talk to someone who has been there, who really knows the city and loves the city. Lisa and I had a chance to be in Paris for a day and a half, and you may think that's a crime, and it really is. But we were coming back from a mission trip to Ukraine where I'd been teaching, and we had a stopover, a layover, right? What do you do for a day and a half in Paris? Well, we saw just about everything we could. We were run ragged. But it would have been great to have talked to somebody and said, what should we do with a day and a half in Paris? And they would have told us all kinds of things, right? Folks, why is it that we, when we ask both sets of questions to Christians today, it is far easier for us to identify Paris, where it's located, and how to get to know it than it is to prove that Jesus Christ lived, that he was really God, and that a real relationship with him is possible. Why is that first question so much harder for us than the second? Right? And if you compare your notes from those two questions, you're probably sitting there going, yeah, it was a lot easier to talk about Paris than you know, all of the details about Jesus' life. Why is that so? And I think quite simply, if we, if we just kind of boil it down to some of the real basics, Paris seems more real, it's more tangible, it's more accessible, and it is more provable today than Jesus, some would say, right? It just seems like that's a no-brainer. But that's exactly why the church needs 1 John. So if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, would you open them to 1 John chapter 1? And we're going to look at four verses today, just verses 1 through 4. And this is where John begins this journey with us of knowing things absolutely. And he says to us, first of all, in these verses, Jesus is absolutely real. And secondly, Jesus is absolutely God. And thirdly, we can absolutely have a real relationship with him. I want you to keep in mind as you're taking a look in 1 John 1-4, through 4, John is not writing to us without a treasure trove of substance. He spent three intense, up-close, emotionally impactful years, day in and day out with Jesus. He has this rich background of information, this catalog of truth, and his heart and mind have been deeply etched by the wonder of those years. In fact, in his gospel, the Gospel of John, the closing words reflect that substance. Here's what he writes. John 21, 24 through 25. This, referring to himself, is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. He says in verse 25, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I've always told my wife it's not a matter of not having enough books. It's not having enough bookshelves, right? The Library of Congress could not contain all of the information about Jesus Christ. And John says, I've just recorded some of it for you here that you may know who Jesus Christ is. Now, the problem for John was this. These substantial stories, these memories that he had written down were not being embraced by the first century church. As John writes this from the city of Ephesus, he hears rumbles of retraction. He hears 
uh, drumbeats of dementia among Christians who are forgetting the ancient truths. And there is a, a new twist on these ancient truths that is making its way uh, through the church. And once faithful men and women are compromising the truth that he has presented and they're casting shadows over the absolutes of the word of God. So that as newer converts come into Christianity, they are no longer absolutely confident and assured of who Jesus was. Like the darkness of Mordor spreading over Middle-earth, there was this growing shadow over the truth of the word of God in John's world. It was a grip that we know today as Gnosticism, and it was tightening on the minds of believers. One author describes Gnosticism this way. He writes, Gnosticism was perhaps the most dangerous heresy that threatened the early church during the first three centuries. Gnosticism is based on two false premises. First, it taught a dualism regarding spirit and matter. That is, matter is inherently evil, spirit is good. And as a result of this, he writes, Gnostics believed anything done in the body, even the grossest sin, had no meaning because real life exists only in the inner spirit realm. The material world, he says, was worthless and at times even evil. Thus, the body could be either denied or debauched. It didn't really matter what you did because it was the inner life that was true life. Meaning also that God the Son could not have had a human body. You can see how John pushes back against this. The author goes on to say, Gnostics secondly claimed to possess an elevated knowledge, a, a higher truth known only to a certain few. And Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. We think of agnostics. They don't know. This is the same term. Gnostics claim to possess a higher knowledge, not from the Bible, but acquired on some mystical higher plane of existence. They saw themselves as a privileged class, elevated above everybody else by their higher and deeper knowledge of God. Thus, humanity does not come to God through Jesus Christ, but rather through insight and information. So Gnosticism in John's day was the newest bully on the block. And it was beating up the truths, that were these ancient truths that John was presenting. And, and we can say to ourselves, aren't we glad Gnosticism isn't around today? Or isn't it? It absolutely is in our world today. It's just given itself a new title. The title of Gnosticism today is self-determinism. Myself determining who I am, where my freedoms are what I will do, who I will be. If you've ever heard of the Gospel Coalition, they help define Gnosticism today. They give us four principles. These are in your notes. If you don't see them there, you might want to write them down because this is what we see in our world today pushing back against the ancient truths of Christianity. So Gnosticism, they say today, or self-determinism, tells us that number one, freedom is found by escaping any natural created order. And here's their definition. They write, in Gnosticism, freedom is found by having a particular type of gnosis or knowledge or wisdom. This wisdom is meant to free you from the false impressions of the material world which are deceptive and enslaving. It's a rebellion against the natural created order. And the more you rebel against the natural created order or the laws of nature, of gender identity, of God-given authority and the like, the better off you'll be. So self-determinism today says my freedom is found 
by escaping the natural created order of God. Secondly, freedom is found by looking within. So ancient Gnosticism and modern modes of thought share the deep-rooted conviction, they write, that the source of self is found by looking within, not without. For, or so what I myself, um, so what I myself want, my reality to be, is what matters most, freeing and fulfilling me the most. So it's no longer looking for objective truth, it's looking for subjective perspective. Thirdly, being a fulfilled human being means obeying your inner feelings. Does that sound familiar to us? If you're going to be a freed human being, you have to respond to what is internal rather than external. They write, self-determinism urges us to obey our inner feelings, even if those feelings contradict our external reality. Because the external world is deceptive and corrupt. Remember, that's the Gnostic point of view. What is material is evil. In our, it's our inner world, our inner feelings that are good. Our inner realities, and, and get this, our inner realities define who we are. They define our identity. And so if you want to be a fulfilled, flourishing, healthy human being, you need to express those inner feelings even if, or especially if, they go against your external body and the laws of nature. As a result, just to be yourself has become to be viewed as something much more important than simply pleasing yourself. It's about becoming a proper person, authentic, flourishing human person because of what's internal to me. And number four, being human means creating your own identity. They say even if it means erasing the identity given to you. In the past, your identity was based on several givens that you had little control over, like your sex, family background, race, culture, nationality. Your task was to make the most of what you had been given. But today... Gnosticism and its influence in secular culture encourages people to discover their true identity within, create their own identity in any way they like, and so when there is a conflict between your given external identity and your feelings, the modern approach says it's your external identity that is the problem and needs fixing rather than your feelings. Does any of that sound familiar to us today? Gnosticism in our culture is alive and well. And, and John takes us in a totally different direction. And he says, look, if you want to be free, if you want to be fulfilled, if you want to know your identity, it's directly tied into who Jesus is and our relationship to him, not our inner self. That is where we find those true things. So he says to be truly free, we have to look beyond ourselves to God, who is the word of life. And that's 1 John 1 through 4. So let's take a look at that. I want to give you four simple principles that John lays out for us. And he says, first of all, the word of life is real. The word of life is real. Look at verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. John goes to great trouble here to make his point. He says, Jesus Christ is really God. He's absolutely real. And this is where we're going to find true reality, in a relationship with him. Now notice, he doesn't start with Jesus' name, which would have made a lot of sense because it would clarify who he's talking about. He begins with this phrase, that which was from the beginning. 
So it's describing something substantial from the beginning, but not every day. It's, it's something that is extensive, but not diminutive. So that which is from the beginning is both something and someone. It's a message and a messenger. And he leaves it a little bit general to begin with because it's important. He wants us to understand Jesus is not just a name. It's not just an individual who lived. It's so much more than that. It goes so far beyond that. He ultimately does identify Jesus in verse 3. If you take a look at verse 3, you see the name of Jesus there. But he starts in this opening comment to lay the groundwork of, of something and someone that is much better, bigger, before creation. So let's take a look. He says, that which was from the beginning. Now, I know you didn't come to church this morning hankering to do a deep dive into grammar and syntax, right? Anybody really looking forward to that this morning here at church? But it's so important that we take a minute and notice the grammar. He uses the verb was. Now, in Greek, it's me. But he uses it in a verb tense that was incredibly special. It's what we call the imperfect verb tense. Okay, and you may not be familiar with that, but basically he's saying this is an incredibly special way of talking about something because it describes something that's in the past, but it didn't remain in the past. It's the energizer bunny of verb tenses in the Greek language. So it has a past sense to it, but there's this ongoing, continuous, uh, repetitious nature and impact in life. So if we want to categorize it, it's more like a motion picture verb than a snapshot. Snapshot just says it happened in the past, it's done. Imperfect says it happened in the past, but it has this ongoing sense. And let me give you two Bible passage that, passages that clearly show it. So Mark chapter 4, verse 37 reads this way. Now a fierce gale of wind arose, and waves were breaking over, this is the imperfect verb tense, breaking over the fishing boat in which the disciples were, so much so that the boat was filling with water. So picture yourself in that boat with the disciples. You're in the middle of a storm, and these waves are breaking against the boat over and over and over and over, so much so that you're bailing like crazy trying to get the water out of the boat, and it's still filling. So this is a verb that says there's this ongoing action that impacts life. Luke 9, 16, feeding of the 5,000. The passage says Jesus took five loaves of bread, looked up to heaven, blessed them, broke them, and kept giving, imperfect tense, kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. So you can imagine being there and watching Jesus. He, he takes these five loaves of bread and fish, and, and he prays over them, looks up to heaven, he blesses them, he breaks them, and then he begins to give them. And if you had watched his hands, you would have been wondering, what is he doing? Five loaves, two fish. By the way, they were tilapia. That was the fish that they caught and ate in, in uh, Israel, right? So they're not that huge. He's just breaking them, and, and people are eating and eating and eating until they're finally satisfied, and they have 12 baskets left over. And the disciples look at this, and they go, wow, that was amazing. So how do they describe it? They use the imperfect tense in the Greek language. Something's happening, but it doesn't stop. So what is John's point? Well, his point is that this message and messenger did have a point in history where Jesus entered human history. 
He existed before that. He comes into existence, but his life does not stop. It continues to impact life. So he's not like the dash between the birth and death date on a gravestone. He has more than that. His existence is eternal. He is really God. That's what John is telling us. That which was from the beginning, this ongoing, present, continuous presence and message. And then John stops and he says, let me prove he was actually real as a human being. He's God, but he's also human. And look at the verbs he uses. See them in your text there? He heard Jesus. He saw Jesus. He contemplated Jesus. He touched Jesus. So essentially, if we put this description back into our original question about Paris, John had been to Paris. He heard the sounds of Paris. He had seen the Eiffel Tower in Paris. He had contemplated the paintings at the Louvre. He had got to touch the Arch de Triomphe in Paris. He actually had physically observed, seen, contemplated, and heard Jesus. He brings it right down to the very basic. And one of the verbs that I love here is that he looked at him. Now, you might say, well, he saw him and looked at him. Aren't those the same things? No, they're not. Because seeing was to physically observe to look at or contemplate, he uses the Greek word theamai. Theamai. We get our word theater from that. My grandsons are being raised uh, by their parents without a TV in the home. And they are taking those boys into nature and into life, and occasionally they'll watch, let them watch Wildcrats, you know, or something like that, and, and it'll be at our home. And so we'll sit there and we'll watch Wildcrats together. And I'll tell you, I, I don't watch the, the uh, cartoon. I watch them. Because they have this speechless, open-mouthed wonder. And I've actually called their names. Right? They're just mesmerized by what they're seeing. That's what John says here. He says, we heard him. We saw him. We contemplated him in this open-mouthed, wonderment at all that he was doing and we touched him we rubbed shoulders with him we could smell his sweat after a long journey together we'd washed his feet we'd handed him a plate of food we had joked with him and slapped him on the back when he told a particularly good joke we were connected to him in fact after the resurrection what does jesus say to his disciples touch me a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone now get this John writes this epistle in 90 A.D. What year did Jesus die on the cross? 33 A.D., right? So it's been 57 years since John actually heard, saw, contemplated, and touched him. And yet the memory of that is burned into his mind's eye. He's probably in his mid-80s by this point because he was a contemporary of Jesus, probably around 30, 31 years of age, and at this point in his life, it is still as real and as vibrant and as exciting and true as it was back then. So he talks about Jesus is God, Jesus is real, and then he drops his bombshell. And he says, Jesus is the word of life. You see that in your text? Concerning the word of life. Now, still, he doesn't mention Jesus' name. He says he's the word of life. This is actually the very logos, that's the word in the Greek, of life. Now, to catch the importance of the phrase, you really have to know the Greek culture at that time looked at this word not just as a noun. 
they looked at it as the total concept of something, the essence of something. It was the creative force in nature to the Greeks. It was the very life force of the universe. They write in their, um, in their books about how it controlled the movement of the sun, moon, and stars. It determined the seasons. It was um, the uh, determiner of night and day. It was what held everything together. That was the logos. And John takes this beautiful term, and he says, so I'm writing to you about that which holds everything together. The Logos. Do you see why he didn't use the name Jesus right off the bat? He didn't want them to get locked into the humanity. He wanted them to see the beauty of the majesty of Jesus. He is the word, the Logos, on life. Now you could say life a lot of different ways in the Greek language. You could say bios. We use our word biosphere, right? We talk about the place life can exist. He doesn't use that idea. It's too general. He uses the word zoa, which is where we get our word zoo. Any of you like to go to the zoo? Wild Animal Park? Actually, it's no longer called the Wild Animal Park, is it? It's a safari park. But this word describes for us everything. Hold on just a second. There we go. I just switched screens. That doesn't help. It describes for us everything from snakes to giraffes, water buffalo to squid, spiders to lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. He's saying, in other words, there is no form of life that Jesus is not in charge of, the creator of, authority over. And this was a sucker punch to the Gnostics of his day. Because remember, material things are evil. But if the Logos that has sustained and created all things is tangible and real and good, the creator of all things, then how can we maintain our Gnostic perspectives? Folks, this is why Paul writes about Jesus this way, and you'll see it up on the screen. Colossians 1, he says, look, Christ is the invisible image of the invisible God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. He's supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms on earth, and he made the things we can see and the things we can't see, thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Logos. So John says, this word of God is real. This word of God is is really God. And secondly, he says, it has been revealed. Look at verse 2. This life, this zoe, was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So John's proclamation of Jesus is fascinating here. He says this expansive, creative, unimaginably magnificent, varied Zoa life of God has become real to us. The word manifest means made clear or obvious. It's something that is truly there. You can see it. I saw it. You can see it. He is God. We are not. And that's a good thing. Listen to John Piper in his commentary on this passage. He says, This is the stumbling block of the Incarnation. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. 
We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and we must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. This speaks into the face of our, our world today. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And as this man becomes the measure of all things, this is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. The incarnation, he writes, is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is totalitarian, authoritarian, imperialism, despotism, usurpation, absolutism. Who does he think he is? God. And John proclaims this truth to everyone he meets because he wants us to experience this real life through Jesus Christ, the fullness of life. All that life has to offer is through the God-man. So John proclaimed this to them. And the word there means literally to report, to rehearse, to become a play-by-play announcer of the moment. How many of you are Dodger fans? Yeah. I know Steve-O's out there somewhere. He told me today, wear your Dodger hat, Doug. I don't own one, Steve. And I didn't feel like wearing my Padres. So, But Vin Scully, right? Vin Scully, 67 years of play-by-play announcement. What an incredible record. In fact, I brought for Steve-O this morning this brief clip. It's time for Dodger Baseball. The poet laureate of baseball, the best there ever was, the voice of heaven. Those are just a few of the ways colleagues have described the great Vin Scully. But to Dodger fans, he was simply known as Vinny, the perfect mix of eloquence, humor, knowledge, candor, and humility. Who else could fittingly quote Shakespeare while skillfully capturing the excitement of the national pastime? And he did so with ease. Vin Scully is Dodger baseball. John was the voice of heaven to say to us, Jesus is real, really God, and you could really know him. He proclaims it to everyone who would listen. He focuses on this ancient nature and authoritative presentation of life, and he says, this is the ultimate guide to everything you will ever want to experience in life, and then he strikes gold. And he says to us, the word of life is available to all. None of us can be or need be limited in our experience of life if we will come to the word of life. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, goes right back to verse 1. We also proclaim to you, he goes to verse 2. Why? So that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Now he finally mentions him, Jesus Christ. So here John's purpose in writing all of this crystallizes. And he says, I want you to have the same experience with Jesus Christ that I had of knowing that he's real, knowing that he's really God, and knowing I can really know him. And he has had this exquisite joy of being in fellowship with Jesus and with the Father. Do you remember last week we talked about how wonderfully his life was transformed? Son of thunder, beloved one. 
He had a radical transformation. And he says, folks, I want that for you today as well. And I want you to have the fellowship that I've had with Jesus. Now, today we use that word rather loosely, don't we? We have churches called Fellowship Bible Church. We have uh, activities we engage in that we use that word. Hey, let's grab some fellowship after church. Now, for those who don't know Christ well, that might be like, really? Fellowship? But we use it a lot. We say, hey, I've been missing our fellowship together. Or let's go out to the fellowship area by the coffee card, right? John says, hey, there's so much more to that than a place together or a group of people. What he talks about here is a supernatural experience of sharing something in common with someone and caring about them enough to meet real needs in their lives sacrificially. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9, 12. Paul writes about this. And this is in the passage where he's talking about giving to help the church in Jerusalem that's having a famine and um, a lack of finances. And he says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, those in Jerusalem, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your fellowship for them. Now, your translation probably says your contribution for them. But the word there is koinonia. It's the same exact word. And it's so clear. Fellowship is not just about a cup of coffee with a friend. It's not just about gathering in a place that's called by that name. It's about a commonality that results in sacrificial service to the needs of others. Many years ago, uh, Lisa's mom passed away. We had just moved down to our second church that we were pastoring in, uh, down in Carlsbad, and uh, we were processing the grief. And a woman who knew us at our church came, and uh, she knew what it meant to lose a loved one. She had recently lost one of her own. And she came to our home while we were at the memorial service. I still don't know how she got in. And she left a huge cooked meal beautiful bouquet of flowers, huge on our island, bouquet of flowers, and groceries for the week. And we were floored by her selfless love. We came home, opened the door, thinking, we were exhausted. We're thinking, okay, we've got to get food on the table, we've got to think about the week ahead of us, and it was all done. And what she was doing was having fellowship with us. That is Fellowship. It's more than a casual conversation. It's more than just something we do with somebody. It is something in common. We have the commonality of Christ among us, and it prompts us to serve them sacrificially. Why? Because Jesus sacrificed himself to save us from sin and death and Satan, and it's that sacrifice we share as believers. That is what he has done for us, And John later on in this book says, if you want to say that you're walking with Jesus, you have to walk like Jesus walked. You got to be a person who sacrifices for others. So let me ask you a moment. Let's bring this right down to ground zero for a second. When you think of fellowship, I want you to think of someone who has met a need in your life. A fellow Christian, maybe it's in your home group, maybe it's young adults, maybe it's in uh, some setting here in the church, a ministry team you're a part of, where they knew you had a need and they decided to meet that need. Think about that for a second. How did that make you feel? 
What did it do in your heart? In your thoughts? Think about somebody that you have done that for. Maybe you were that gal who came to our home and put that stuff all out. How did you feel when you left? Was it a feeling of excitement and joy knowing you had met a need? Because what John says to us here at the end of this section in verse 4 is that the word of life is packed with joy. Look at this. Verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So that as we have this fellowship, this mutual commonality, and we meet needs and we sacrifice and we help others around us, the outcome is joy. He even selects a special word for this. He uses the word plurao. Plurao. It means to be completely packed, totally full, busting at the seams, no more room left. Let me give you a visual picture of that on the screen. <laughs> Coldstone Creamery. It's close to our home in Carlsbad. We went there off and on. This was my favorite, Oreo Overload. I mean, just the name itself, right? Oreo Overload. And you look at that and you go, gosh, yeah, that's plurao. That's busting at the seams. That's over the top. That's totally full. And John writes to us and he says, folks, your commonality in Jesus Christ, where you've accepted his sacrifice for your sins, you've welcomed him into your world, you've actually become a part of his world, his kingdom, you have made that transition from darkness to light, which is a part of John's writing here. He says, when you understand that and you live it out, you get joy. Let me give you some examples here at Trinity, because I think God is at work here at Trinity calling us to sacrificial needs and to joy. Good Friday. We had 410 people come to worship here. And I will tell you this because I met with the pastor ministry director team afterwards. There was joy. Not because of the numbers, but because people had come to spend time with Jesus. And there was joy over all of the work they put into it. Last week's picnic. We served close to 300 of you who stayed around and had lunch with us. Steve bought for 260. At the very end, we were taking hot dog buns and cutting them in half for, hot, for hamburger buns, right? Because we just ran out. We had like one or two hamburgers left. And those who worked that day, I spent time with them afterward, helping them clean up. And there was this joy over what they had been able to do to serve and meet the needs of others. This week, Trinity Church hosted a pastor's get-together. This is a seasonal thing that happens. It was our turn to do that. And again, uh, they were trying to think, well, how many pastors and staff are going to come? And so they planned for about 40 or 50 80 came. Baked potato bar, right? There were two potatoes left. I'm not even sure how they had two left with that many pastors and staff. But I talked to the people who had organized that afterwards, and there was a joy. Uh, Bill came into our, our meeting, uh, Bill Bourne, and he, he was just lit up over what God had done through the work of the people who prepared for that. I love what C.S. Lewis talks about in uh, his, his books. He says, Aslan is on the move. Winter is fading, spring is coming. And God invites us in this short section of verses in John, 1 John, to understand that it all begins with 
the word of life, the logos, the one who encompasses and controls and influences all things, all of life. And he says, come to him, he who is eternal God, he who is real, he who offers you fellowship with him because he sacrificed for you and sacrifice your life for the well-being of others. And when you do, you will experience this plurao joy in your heart. So let me ask you today as we wrap this up, where is your heart today? Have you come with a heavy heart? A burdened heart? A tired heart? God would say to you today, you can have a joyful heart. But it isn't something that just happens. It's something that you engage in because of who Jesus is, because of who you now are in Christ, and because he's given you the privilege of meeting needs of others around you. So where are you meeting needs? Where am I meeting needs in the body of Christ? Who do you know in the body of Christ who has a need that you can meet? And will you meet it? Will you find the joy that he offers us? We're going to take a few minutes here At the end of this service, we've got just a couple minutes to pray together as a congregation. And I want to give you some things to think about as we pray together. This will be uh, on your own, just in your own thoughts. Uh, Oh, and by the way, um, we are going to be um, celebrating a week of prayer, the first week of May. So you'll get more information in your inbox and in your mailbox. We're actually mailing some things out to you. We want to spend a week of prayer while we are celebrating the National Day of Prayer. But it's so important for us to to actually personalize these things. So would you join me right now? Let's bow our heads. Let's take some time together with the Lord. And would you first of all just thank God for the sacrifice he made for you to become a part of the body of Christ. That he was willing to sacrificially die on the cross, be resurrected, give his life for you so that you could sit here today as a follower of Christ and say, I have that relationship. Would you just take a minute and thank him for that? Would you also invite God to guide you into ways of sacrificial service, what the Bible calls fellowship, toward others here at Trinity Church? We talk a lot about the different needs of the different ministries, and they're great. There are many people that are needed. But more importantly, what is God calling you to? How might you sacrifice your time, your attention, your energy, you're weak for the well-being of others. Invite God to guide you into ways to do that right now, would you?
would you remind yourself that God is the source of joy? This world has a lot of things to offer us, but it cannot give us that kind of lasting joy that comes through God and through Jesus Christ. Would you thank God that he offers us such overwhelming joy and he ties it into our walk with him? And if you need joy this morning, would you ask God to work in your heart, to work in your life, to connect you with people who have a need so that you might experience joy. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads and hearts before you this morning as your children, as your people who have been called into relationship with you through the powerful life of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. You've implanted within us the presence of your Holy Spirit who encourages us and strengthens us and guides us and comforts us and challenges us to walk the Christian walk. And Father, we may say this morning, I'm not sure that I'm doing that well. Well, Lord, you are the one who empowers that. So for those among us who need your strength, God, would you do that through your Holy Spirit. Guide us. Help us not to be self-inward determining, self-determinists who say what is inside of me is more important than the world God created or the walk that he has made for me to walk. Father, help us to humble our hearts before you and to recognize that you alone are the word of life, that you provide true, lasting, transformative life through Jesus Christ. And God, we praise you for that this morning because we get to be the beneficiaries of it and the proclaimers of it. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name and we thank you for it. Amen.